I want to uh, briefly recap this slide, this piece of paper. I asked you last week to take this piece of paper and keep it. And before you sit down at any time to disciple someone, to review it. Because it's important. It is important that we begin to disciple people with the right goal in mind. So we're going to briefly go over this again. Just briefly. I'm not going to go in depth. This is the five levels of learning. All are necessary. But we typically stop at the third one. So if you remember from last week, the first level of learning is rote learning. Rote learning. This is simple memorization. This is being able to spit something out that you've been taught to memorize. Do you guys remember what I asked you to remember last week? Okay, say it louder, those who remember it. Voakie, right? Those people got rote learning. The rest of us, not so much. (laughs) All right, so that's rote learning. The next level of learning is recognition. It's the ability to recognize biblical concepts in our in our paradigm. Now, it's not all you can recognize science concepts if you're learning about science and things like that. But in our paradigm and what we're talking about is the ability to recognize biblical concepts. What did Voakie mean? Clear voice. Okay, so we're recognizing if I say clear voice, you think Voakie. If I say Voakie, you think clear voice. You're recognizing the concept. Okay, these levels of learning are facts. They're basic but insufficient. We need them, but they're not enough. They're not enough. The next level of learning is restatement. It's the ability to express or relate the concepts of a biblical system of thought. What was clear voice or voakie? What was the purpose behind that? I won't. It's going to be all over the map because it's restated in your own words, so I'll say what it is. It said we want to provide clear communications. When I was in the army, we wanted to give people a clear channel of communications. I can restate that in my own words. So that's restatement. Okay? And it's that way with biblical concepts as well. This gives meaning in terms of learning. It changes our worldview. And this is typically what we aim for in discipleship. And I'm here to tell you, it is the wrong aim. Changing the worldview is a step towards the final result. It is not the final result. We don't want people to just have a biblical worldview and then do nothing with it. This, my friends, is head knowledge. This is head knowledge. What we typically call head knowledge inside the church. And I want to come and say something about head knowledge. People make out so much in church like head knowledge is bad. It's not bad. You need to understand in your head. You need to be able to wrap your mind around it. If you don't know what evangelism means, how are you ever going to turn it into heart knowledge? So head knowledge is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if we stop at head knowledge. All right. Next level of learning is relation. It's the ability to relate biblical truths to life and see the appropriate response. Right? So when we go back to my example of Voakie, I need to provide clear communication channels. That means when I'm in my satellite terminal and I'm running that in the army, that means my appropriate response would be to stay awake, not sleep, and make sure that the system's running. I can recognize that. But as I confessed my sin to you last week, when I first became a part of the army, I didn't always stay awake. I could see the appropriate response, But I did not always do the appropriate response. So this is relation. I can see it. Right? We go back to the biblical concept. Evangelism. I can see that I need to share Jesus with this person. I can see that I need to stop and pray with them. I can see that I need to tithe. I can see that I need to show up and be a part of worship service. I can see that I need to submit to a teacher who teaches me to follow Jesus. But I maybe haven't done it yet. And then the highest level of learning, the learning we're going for is realization. Where we not only see the truth, but we apply it to daily life. Actualizing the response, actually doing it. This is the highest level of learning. It gives meaning in terms of life experience. I am now living out my faith. 
This is the highest level of learning. This is why I give examples in my sermons about possible ways to, to apply them. To stimulate your thinking about how you might apply that truth to your life. Helping you, trying to help you to come to the place where you have relation and realization in your life. Amen? The whole thing about this. The higher the level of learning you go, the teacher's role changes. In the beginning, there on the top, the teacher's role is telling you. It's giving you all the facts. It's the teacher's the expert. As you go into the higher levels of learning, you become an expert. And the teacher's role is just to guide you. Just to kind of give you a gentle prod here and there. To point you in in a general direction. And then watch you run with the ball. This is the goal that we're going for with discipleship. This is what we're trying to, to see happen in people's lives. And I want to tell you something. I believe the problems that the church around the world is plagued with is lack of discipleship uh, to the fifth level. We are, in the words of many Christian leaders, we have been over-discipled to the point of knowledge, head knowledge, which is the third level restatement. But we haven't done heart knowledge, which is relation, or hand knowledge, which is realization. Let me say what they're saying about this. This is the way that the other teachers say it. We don't obey the things we already know. We want to learn so much about Jesus, but don't want to obey what we already know. Can I tell you this? If you never learned in your head another thing about Jesus and just obeyed what you've already been taught, even if you've only been a believer for six months like Missy, our church would be healthier than almost any church on the face of the planet, and our community would change. Now, this is not a beat-up. I'm not trying to beat you up. We struggle with obeying sometimes. It's hard. It's hard. That's why we're going into this next lesson on the principles of discipleship. Obeying, coming to this level of learning, it's difficult. Did you know that when we preach the gospel to people... We inadvertently preach a prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about the financial prosperity gospel. Some people do that. But we preach a version of the prosperity gospel. We tell people, come to Jesus Christ and he'll give you lasting joy, peace, happiness, and life fulfillment. You come to Jesus Christ and everything's going to be all right. There's truth in this. In the eternal. But my friends, we live in a fallen world. We live in two overlapping kingdoms. The kingdom of God has come on earth, but not yet fully come. That's why we don't see all the promises happen all the time. Because we live in these two overlapping kingdoms. The church age, the age which we find ourselves in, is is an overlapping kingdom age. Where the enemy still has sway. The New Testament teaches us this. So coming to Christ and being a Christian is hard. It's difficult. Because we're asked to obey difficult things. We have to come to this point of sacrifice. I want to tell you today. There is a high price of discipleship that has to be paid. There is a high price extremely high price of discipleship that has to be paid. Discipleship is not easy. It is not a cakewalk. And it's not optional. There's a cost. And I think we've done the gospel in injustice. With this easy believer mentality. Come to Jesus Christ to give you lasting joy, peace, happiness, and life fulfillment. Come get saved, but you don't have to do anything. Listen, you don't have to do anything to get saved except for repent and believe. But repentance means you're sorry for being the kind of person who would rebel against Jesus anyways. And so when you repent and believe and the Holy Spirit comes, guess what he's going to do? 
He's going to start transforming the way you live. He's going to ask you to do crazy stuff. The thing about it is, it never seems any less crazy. Unless we're looking back. Like when I became a believer, nobody told me this. My pastor asked me, what would be a hindrance to your witness? My ridiculous answer to him. Because I didn't understand the question. Oh, if my parents were around. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, if my mom and dad were around, I think that might be a hindrance to my witness because I don't need, you know, it's my parents and I don't really know. And he goes, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about stuff going on in your life that would hinder your witness. I said, I don't know. Like what? And he goes, just pray about it. Now I'm going to shock you with something. Okay. Before I tell you this, I want to tell you something. I believe a person can drink and go to heaven. I believe a person can smoke and go to heaven. I believe a person could, uh, you know, we always hear this. We don't drink and we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do. <laughs> so, but I think you could do those things and end up in heaven. Okay. But here's what the Lord, and I want you to understand that's my theology on this before I go into this. So I'm at work. I'm still in the army and I'm praying. I'm asking God for basically, I didn't know about it at the time, but I'm asking God for a fifth level of learning on this thing, on how to be like Jesus, on how to follow Him. So I'm asking God, God, what do you want me to do? What would hinder my witness? And the Lord told me something. It was very interesting. The Lord said, you've never gained any credibility because you smoke, dip Copenhagen and drink. But you will lose credibility with people. Understand, I'd never heard a sermon. I didn't grow up in the church. I'd never heard a sermon preached against alcohol or tobacco. And if you smoke or you drink or you chew, that's fine. It's not my point. I'm just telling you what the Lord said to me. This is my conviction. This is not my absolute that everybody has to obey. Okay? So I'm sitting there. And this is funny because as I'm doing this, I got a big dip of Copenhagen in my mouth and a cigarette with a bunch of bunch of alcohol at the house. And the Lord said, that would hinder your witness. That's what he's talking about. It won't gain you credibility with anybody. And there's certain people that won't lose you credibility with, but there are people who you will lose credibility with. So I opened my can of Copenhagen and dumped it in the trash bag that was hanging on the, t- that was hanging on the tailgate of the five-ton truck that I was sitting on at my satellite terminal in the Army. Then I took my cigarettes out and I broke my cigarettes because I'd tried to quit before because my wife wanted me to. Right? And then when I got home that night after, off a shift, I opened every can of beer, poured it out, and I opened up all my whiskey and poured it out. I have never had, since that day, nicotine ever again in my life. And I never had a craving. I have had alcohol twice. Both times I was out of the country. No, I'm sorry, three times. I used to be twice until this last time I went to Russia. Both, All three times while I was out of the country. The first time, they brought us drinks at a table. We were sitting out in Argentina for lunch. Didn't cross anybody's mind that they bring it to the table like, like water. Didn't cross anybody's mind they brought us alcohol. Sitting on the street in Argentina, I pick it up and take a drink. I'm like, I believe that's alcohol. <laughs> the missionary said, yes, it is. <laughs> so the second time was in Argentina. They used fermented wine for the communion. The third time was in Russia. They used fermented wine for the communion. Now, get hear my heart. I'm not telling you you're going to hell if you drink. I'm not telling you you're going to hell if you smoke. I'm telling you that God told me personally from my life that I needed to make a sacrifice if I wanted to live for Him. You cannot go home and quit smoking or drinking or chewing just because I said this. Unless the Lord's speaking it to you. Understand? If the Lord tells you, He'll provide the power. But if he doesn't tell you, don't stop just because I'm preaching it. Okay? I'm just trying to give you the example. There's a cost to being a disciple. 
I had to say, these people that I might be trying to reach are more important than me. And friends, I was not a pastor yet. I was actually a brand new believer. And the Lord was doing this in my life. Because I was asked to go to that fifth level of learning. I wonder how many times we thwart this fifth level of learning. This this realization. This actualizing the response. Because we're praying, how can we apply this truth to our life? And God tells us a way to apply it. And we're like, one of two things. I don't think that was God. Like, you ask God, He speaks, and you don't like the response. You're like, ah, or, or, la, 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 I can't hear you, la, 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 right? I wonder how many times that happens. You know, that, we, that the response is there, and God is calling us, but we don't like it, and so we shy away from it. Let me give you another example of what I mean. When we started to leave Crossroads Fellowship, we weren't coming to Western PA. We were going to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. I felt like the Lord was calling us to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and I believe at this point, if God's perfect will had been done, that's where we'd be right now. It fell apart for various and sundry reasons. Yes, I think God has permissive will, and that church still, four years later, has no pastor. It fell apart, and I think that we were supposed to be there, but, you know, know, stuff happens. But as I was feeling called to this, I told God, The last time we were out of the country, my marriage almost fell apart in Belgium. Being out of the country is probably all that saved it, actually. It started falling apart there, but it wasn't easy to get divorced when you're in Belgium and you're an American citizen. So so it probably saved it, too. But I'm like, my wife is not going to want to go overseas. And I said, Jesus, if we're going to go to Ulaanbaatar, if that's where you want us to go, I want to ask you for something that only you can do. I took my Gideon fleece, and Gideon's not a bad guy, by the way, for doing this, and I laid it before God, and I said, God, if this is really your will, Sarah will want to go. Because only God could do that. She will tell you to this day, in her flesh, it was like, no! But the Lord gave her a heart for that. When she was first hearing this from the Lord... I think she was responding like this. La, 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 I can't hear you. La, 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 la. She used to tell every missionary that would come and, and be speaking at our missions conferences. Yeah, I'm not, I'm never going overseas. And we have really good friends who are in Africa right now, Terry and Barry Newman. And, and they said, we'll pick you up at the airport. <laughs> that was their response. Because they knew that God years before was preparing Sarah for something, was preparing Sarah to say yes. Church, discipleship costs. We need to understand that. I think that's probably part of the reason that the author of Hebrews wrote this, and it's the same scriptures as last week. And remember, I I asked you to try to memorize this passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read it from the ESV. I want to encourage you. We're going to stay with this for a few more sermons. Memorize this passage. Get the rote learning so that it can go on all the way up to the realization. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled that kind of hurts because there's another place in scripture that tells us to desire the pure milk of god you know that pure spiritual milk that comes from the word of god but if we're just living on the milk we're unskilled something's supposed to happen with it but i digress let me get back into my sermon here since he is a child but solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil Let me tell you how most people translate this real quick. But solid food is for the mature. And so that's why we have to pick a preacher that gives us solid food to eat, that gives us a big meaty steak. Can I just tell you something that I believe wholeheartedly? I cannot give you solid food. 
It is impossible for me to give you solid food. I don't believe that any preacher can give you meat. I don't believe if Jesus was standing here preaching the sermon himself out of his own physical mouth that it would be meat. It only becomes meat when you go to God and you say, how do I apply this in my life? How do I realize this truth in my life? That's when it becomes meat. I used to say it like this. Maybe I'll start saying it again. I can give you a bottle, but if you want a steak, you're going to have to go to the grocery store and get it yourself. You've got to take... That's why we have homework. I want to facilitate you getting meat. But you have to get it yourself. Because if you stand... If all you do is listen to me preach and you never wrestle with it on your own, guess what? This passage of Scripture is going to be about you. But when you go home and you begin to wrestle with it and you begin to see that there's a cost... To this discipleship thing. A high cost. Then you go, oh. That's a steak. i got to chew on that for a while. Really, God? You're really calling me to go to Bolivia? On a, on a missions project? Really? I, I don't have the money. And you're wanting me to say yes to this? That's a steak. That's the thing you got to chew on for a while. Amen? Does the illustration make sense? Amen? So let's pray. And then we'll talk about this cost a little bit more clearly. Father, I don't believe that there's a person at all seated in this room right now or a person who would listen to this later on online who doesn't want to grow in their faith. I believe we're here because we want to grow. Because we want to know how to pursue you wholly. I believe that we all basically want to follow you with all of our heart. And so I ask you today to speak to us. To help us to process this. And to help us to come into a place of obedience to you where we're willing to pay the cost. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen. So I want to go over the principles of discipleship again before we get into this cost thing. So the first principle of discipleship, if you can remember it, and I, and I think I typed it wrong the last time. I think I put be like, but a disciple submits to a teacher who teaches him or her how to follow Jesus. That's the first principle. I think I said be like the last time, but it's how to follow Jesus. You know, but you can use be like if you like that better. A disciple submits to a teacher who teaches him or her how to follow Jesus. We have to be in these mutual relationships of submission. Not relationships of abuse. Relationships of submission. Where we're submitting to one another and learning from one another. The second principle of discipleship is that a disciple learns Jesus' words. All the way to the realization level. I want to say something, and it may chafe you a little bit. Now that you know about the realization level, if you purposely aim at level three instead of level five, I don't think you're a disciple. If you purposely aim to just get head knowledge, I don't think you're a disciple. I know that's tough. But Jesus says, a disciple is not above his master. And when a disciple is fully trained, he'll be like his master. So this isn't Jerry saying it. I think Jesus says it. I think he says it a little more clearly here. There will be many on that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? And he said, and I will say to them on that day, depart from me. You workers of iniquity or you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. I don't believe that you can be a disciple without obeying Jesus now that you know. 
I believe you have to obey those things that He tells you. And I believe you need to question yourself if you're really His disciple. Because a disciple is committed to his master or her master and wants to be like them, wants to follow them, wants to obey. Now, the third principle of discipleship, the one that we're talking about today, is that a disciple learns Jesus' way of ministry. I'm not going to go back over the learn thing again. This is also to the fifth level, to the hand knowledge, to the obedience level. Okay? A disciple learns Jesus' way of ministry. But what is Jesus' way of ministry? What does Jesus' way of ministry look like? I'm going to leave this up here on the screen for you. A disciple learns Jesus' way of ministry. Let me tell you what Jesus' way of ministry is. It's the way of a servant. It's the way of a servant. What does a servant do? A servant puts other people's needs above their own. A servant doesn't insist on his or her own way. A servant will lay down his or her life for people. There's a lot of talk in the world of leadership on servant leadership. It's, it's beginning to gain a following even in the secular circles. And it's interesting to me because sometimes people want to change what servant leadership means. Because they don't like the whole serving part. I was reading a, a book. I want to say it was Edgar Schein who wrote it. I uh, can't promise you that. But I was reading a book and it just he said this and it just it kind of hit me and kind of stuck with me. He said... Servant leadership for many people in the world today is I will serve until I'm a leader and then I stop serving. This isn't servant leadership. This is manipulation. You were serving until you got the position you wanted and then you stopped serving. I'm going to say this, you weren't serving to begin with. You were trying to get something. See, servant leadership doesn't do it so that it can get something. Serving is not so that you can be served. A person who's really serving is serving because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing for me to love Jamie enough to serve her with no expectation of anything in return. I mean, did Jesus say that? When you lend, lend without expectation of repayment? Isn't that what he said? I know that's tough. I know it's hard words. But we serve expecting nothing in return. This is what Jesus did. This is his way of ministry. You're going to be reading homework this week. And it's going to be crazy some of the things that you're going to read. There was this woman who pushed her way to Jesus. She had an issue of blood for 12 years. She was having female bleeding for 12 years straight. According to the book of Leviticus, this made her unclean. And everything she touched was unclean. It was defiled and everything she touched was defiled. She pushed her way to Jesus to touch the hem of his robe. And she defiled him and made him ceremonially unclean. And he healed her. He could have said, oh, don't touch me. You'll soil me. You'll make me unholy. I won't be able to go into the temple. Stay back. Stay back. Stay back. But that's not what he did. Some of you are thinking, yeah, she snuck up on him. Come on, he's God. He knew she was coming. When he said, who touched me? He wasn't asking because he didn't know. He was trying to make a point. You're going to read in your homework this week, if you read it, 
about these lepers that came to Jesus. This leper comes to Jesus and says, Master, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, you need to understand something. According to the Levitical law, he couldn't even get close to Jesus because he was defiling him, let alone letting Jesus touch him. And Jesus, and it says this in the passage, Jesus said, oh, I will. And he reached out and touched him. Jesus chose to defile himself. Because Jesus is love, friends. Because he's God and God is love. You want to know what love looks like? Look at Jesus. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not puffed up. It doesn't insist on its own way. Friends, this isn't a description of some emotion. This is a description of our God. Because we know in one of John's epistles, he says that God is love. And then in Paul's epistle, there in the Corinthian epistles, he says, here's what love looks like. Here's what God looks like. If anybody had a right to say, don't defile me, don't touch me, don't do all of this, it would be the one who made the rules. I mean, these rules for leprosy and the discharge, that was so that disease wasn't spread. It wasn't because he wanted those people to be cast out. It was so that disease wouldn't be spread. But he touched He reached out and touched. You're going to read about this woman who came to Jesus. And just being in the presence of Jesus, she wept. And her tears were falling on his filthy, nasty, dirty feet. Most people couldn't afford shoes back then. Only the rich people had shoes. And they had open sewers. And if you don't know what that looks like, go to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, and go to the, the, the inner city slums that they say don't exist. You look at it on Google Earth and it shows big green areas. You look at it in real life, it shows houses made of trash, open sewers, filthiness coming down it. That's, their houses weren't made of trash, but they had the open sewer system. She's crying and she's letting her hair go all over his feet. And Simon, this Pharisee, said in his own heart, he says to himself, it says, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus replies, Simon, there was a man who owed this and there was a man who owed that. And he goes through this whole thing. He says, which one loved more? He said, the one who was forgiven much. He said, that's right. And because of what this woman's done, her sins are forgiven. He allowed himself to, as a man to be touched by a woman of ill repute. When we were at another church that we served at at one point, some of the folks started talking about reaching out to the local strippers. And there were people in the church who said there was no way that that was godly. That the women in our church could not go into that strip club without defiling themselves. Do you know the cost of discipleship sometimes? is maybe that you're going to have to go someplace where the religious crowd rejects you. Now, I want to say this. I don't think us as men need to walk into the strip club. We need to wait till she comes out to minister to her. Right? We don't need to go in there and cause ourselves to fall flat on our face and sin. But our women who were being led to do this were being rejected. And they had to pay a cost. They had to pay a price. Just like Jesus was being rejected because he was reaching out to a woman of ill repute. Jesus was rejected time and time and time again. One of Jesus' main disciples was a Jewish tax collector. According to the oral law, this is the, the mission in the Gemara that was finally written down. This is the oral tradition. 
If you were a Jewish tax collector collecting taxes from Jewish people for Gentile governments, you were actually the lowest rung of society. You were even worse than a Gentile. One of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, was a tax collector. He was the group that the religious elite had rejected. Zacchaeus is trying to get up in a tree. It's another tax collector who's the lowest of the low. And he wants to see this Jesus. He wants to encounter the living God. And Jesus calls him down and goes to eat eat with him. And, And he says, salvation has come to this man's house this day. And they rejected Jesus because of this. Because he eats with sinners. Friends, discipleship has a cost. You may not know it because you may have been in this church long enough that it's, that it's become second nature to you. But I promise you, there are churches out there that think we are going straight to hell because we have guitars and drums on Sunday morning. I've been around them. When we start doing outreach ministries, when we start reaching the meth addicts, when we start reaching the drug dealers, when all those things start happening, there's going to be people who say, this isn't holy, this isn't righteous. Let me give you another example of what I'm talking about. There was a church planter who was planting a church. He was reaching out to this guy. This is a true story that happened in the Alliance several years back, and they were sharing this at a church planter's boot camp. And, and so this guy, he, he goes and he's reaching out. And, and one of the guys that he's reaching out to and that's been a part of his church and started coming, the guy gets a DUI. He didn't have anybody to call. So who did he call? He called his pastor. Asked his pastor to come get him out of jail. His pastor gets down there, comes up, talks to the desk sergeant and that sergeant's like, dude, that's one of your church guys? He said, yep. He said, what kind of people go to your church? He goes, this kind. Means Jesus, man. And he walked away from that conversation. The next day, because it was on a Saturday night, the very next day, that desk sergeant and his family were in church. The church people are sometimes going to reject us when we pay this cost of discipleship. But the people who need Jesus, they're going to say, wow, God is there. God is really working among them. Can I just share something with you real quick? I want the worship team that played this morning to come up here real quick on stage with me. Don't, don't delay. Kind of hustle. <clears throat> I want you to hear something. I want you to hear it well. Now, there's, according to Jeff Brown, there's like 27 of us total who want to be a part of the worship team, I guess. I don't know. But it's just what Jeff told me. It's a crazy amount. So you imagine all those other people up there. Everybody that is standing on this stage right now, I promise you, if you dig in our business, you will find a reason to disqualify us from being on this stage. You'll find a reason to disqualify me. You will find a reason to disqualify every single person standing here. Where's my training ground teachers? Ronan's standing here. Who taught training ground for women this morning? Come here. Who taught? Angie, come here. You taught kids this morning. Who else taught kids? Tara, did you teach this morning? Come here. Okay. You will find a reason if you begin to dig in our business to disqualify every single person that is standing here right now. I can't get Stacy up here because she's at a breakaway. But you will find a reason to disqualify every single one of us who's standing up here. We've all got sin. Is there anybody on this stage who wants to make the bold statement that you don't have any sin in your life right now? Okay. 
you'll find a reason to disqualify us all. And the religious elite will do that. But the cost of discipleship is this. If I've got sin in my life, come talk to me privately. Confront me with it. If anybody standing here has sin in their life that you know about, come confront us privately. That's what Matthew 18, 15 through 20 says. Come talk to us in private. By the way, it goes for everybody still seated out there as well. We can disqualify one another. But see, the grace card says something different. The grace card says that even though this sin is going on inside of our life, that we need to be confronted in love. Do we need to be challenged to grow? Absolutely. Do I need to be challenged to put away my sin? Absolutely. Does Jamie need to be challenged? Absolutely. Does Tara need to be challenged? Absolutely. Does Ron need to be challenged? Absolutely. Does Mark? Absolutely. We need to be challenged. We need to be confronted in love. but you need to put us in front of you because I promise you I'm not defiling you by preaching right now even though I've got issues in my life. Mark's not defiling you by leading in worship even when he has issues in his life. None of these people when they've got stuff going on is defiling you. You can go sit down. Thanks for coming up. I want you to get this into your heart and get this into your mind. Get this into your spirit. Let this sink in. I'm not saying that we just wink at sin. Okay, they got sin. Wink, wink. You got the, you got the bike. Cause grace. No, grace confronts sin. Grace confronts sin. The scriptures say it. What shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Grace confronts sin. But grace says, I will put you first. When I confront you, it's going to be because I love you. When I come and get caught up in your mess with you, it's because I love you. You're not defiling me. I promise you, if I stayed away from every person who ever got caught up in sin so they didn't defile me, I wouldn't talk to any of you people. (laughs) And you wouldn't talk to me. Right? But we've got to confront one another in love. We have to put other people's needs in front of our own. This is the way of Jesus' ministry. To put other people's needs in front of our own. To consider them more highly than we consider ourselves. To think of them more highly than we think of ourselves. To say, what can I do to love this person? See, Jesus' way of ministry... It's the way of a servant leader. Jesus' way of ministry is the way of a servant leader. Serving other people. Serving their needs. Loving them even in their junk. Loving the person that's in the pew next to you even when they got junk. I think sometimes it's easier for us to love people outside of the church when they've got junk. But you know these people that are seated to your left or to your right, in front of you or behind you, they need you to love them too. Jesus' way of ministry says, oh, we're we're at the... We're, at church and, and you want to do this and that's something you want. Okay, I'll let you. I'll step out of the way. I'll let you step in and do it. Let me ask you a question. What would our church look like if we all started putting each other's needs first rather than our own? Start thinking about that. Imagine what that would look like. I believe wholeheartedly that the Lord is speaking to people right now and He is pointing out to you needs of other people inside of our congregation or maybe people that are on your block or maybe people that you work with. He's pointing them out to you. I know they popped in your head. I really believe that. What would it look like if you put their need in front of yours? What would our community begin to look like?
What would our community begin to look like if we would stop looking at the drug dealers as the enemy and start looking at them as people who need Jesus, who are worthy of being loved because they were created in God's image. Lost people were created in God's image too, friends. What would our community look like? What would our nation look like? Now, I want to be honest with you. I have nothing against the Amish. And the good thing is, none of them will ever hear this sermon online. (laughs) I have nothing against them. But they live the way they live so that they won't be defiled. And time has moved on and technology has come. And when's the last time you heard of somebody converting to be an Amish? I know of one person out of thousands upon thousands of Amish that I know. And the Amish community doesn't really accept him. I want to encourage us to not become like that. To not become the group that says, you can't be a part of us. The church is not a fortress for us to come and shelter away from the world. The church is a hospital made up of people who are hurting and have needs who are ministering to one another out of their brokenness. But I don't want you to take my word for it. That this is what Jesus' way of ministry looks like. That's why we have homework. It's really interesting. Put that slide in there twice. I don't want you to take my word for it. We have homework. Monday and Tuesday is about how Jesus lowered himself, even making himself unclean to be a servant to others. Monday's Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. Tuesday is Luke 7, 36 through 50. Jesus willingly chooses to make himself unclean. Willingly. He knows that by touching these people and reaching out to them, that he will be unclean. And yet he does it anyway. He puts their needs above his own. Sorry, I'll stay out of your way, girl. Wednesday is about someone else making Jesus unclean. And he could have went, ha, get back. But he didn't. And that's Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. And Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 31. You need to read the Leviticus part because that's where it says... That he's unclean by touching her. Now I want you to understand something. I want to pause on this homework thing real quick. Jesus never sinned. Not once. Not ever. The Bible tells us that. And he touched a woman or he allowed a woman who was unclean by the law to touch him. And he never sinned. think maybe we misunderstand some of God's requirements sometimes because there are people who would say that was sin no Jesus never sinned we know that scripture tells us he who was free of sin was made sin so that we might be called the righteousness of God Thursday's John chapter 13 verses 1 through 20 John chapter 13 verses 1 through 20 and this is about Jesus taking on the role of a servant Now, what he does here in this passage of Scripture, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to go read it. Some of you know already. What he does here, if you were a Jew who had a Jewish slave, you know, because it's not slavery like American slavery. They would sell themselves into slavery, and then on the year of Jubilee, they could be released and all of that stuff. They had to be released unless they chose to stay in slavery. If you had a Jewish slave, what Jesus does here, a Jew who had a Jewish slave could not make this Jewish slave do this job. It was forbidden. You could not make this person do this job. 
You can make a Gentile slave do it, but you cannot make a person of the covenant do it. And Jesus did it willingly on his own. And with other Jews, they reacted really like, you can't do this. He chose to lower himself like that. You need to understand how low he put himself when he did this. Again, I'm not telling you what it is because I want you to go read it. Friday, John 19, verses 16 through 30. Jesus gave his very life. Breathed his last breath for people who were rejecting him. This is the way of Jesus' ministry. And then Saturday is an interesting twist. What does the Old Testament say about David? Does it say, if it does, just shout amen real, really bit loud when I get done. Does it say that David was a man after God's own heart? Yes. Amen. <laughs> does, it, does it say that David was a man after God's own heart? Yes. Okay. This is about David, 1 Chronicles 21, 18 through 27, where David said he can't follow God without paying a cost. That it's actually not following God if it doesn't cost him anything. What a challenge to us. A man after God's own heart knew that if it didn't cost, it wasn't worth messing with. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We thank you that you are an awesome and a mighty God. You're a God who loves us so intently, so deeply, so personally, that we can't even fathom. And you showed us through your son, Jesus Christ, that to be your disciple is to, to place others in front of ourselves, to put their needs above our needs, to become a servant. Lord, I think about Jesus telling His disciples that when we, can't, we can't be like the Gentiles who lord authority over one another, but to be a disciple, we must be a servant to all. Lord, help us to be servants, Lord. Help us to not be afraid of being defiled, but help us to follow You fully. Lord, we ask You to do this, not because You have to, but Lord, because You want to, because You want to change us from the inside out. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said...